Welcome to Voices of NCAJ. We're talking to members of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice about what it means to be a trial lawyer, what it takes to be great at the practice of law, and how being a part of NCAJ enriches their lives and careers. Produced and powered by Law Pods. Welcome, everyone, to Voices of NCAJ, the podcast for the North Carolina Advocates for Justice. I am Amber Nimix, your host and communications and marketing manager for NCAJ. We're in the thick of CLE season with North Carolina attorneys looking to meet the February 28 MCLE deadline. And our always popular Ethics Hot Issues program is coming up on February 21. We know there are a lot of lawyers out there who will be needing to get their ethics hours, and this CLE is the best way to do it. My guest today is NCAJ Legal Affairs Counsel and Chair of the Ethics CLE Program, Sam McGee. Sam is a longtime member of NCAJ, a former member of our Board of Directors, and as Legal Affairs Counsel, he directs NCAJ's amicus briefs and moot court programs. Sam is of counsel with the Wilder Pantazis Law Group in Charlotte. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thanks for having me. So over the course of your career, you have recovered more than $100 million for your clients. And yet you are going to kick off your presentation at the upcoming Ethics CLE by saying what? My name is Sam M. and I'm a broke lawyer. So tell me what this is about and why you are starting out this program with this sort of confessional tone? Well, the fact is, at 25 plus years of practice, I've spent more years as a broke lawyer than one that wasn't broke. The way I got started down this path, talking about this topic, is that it's always seemed to me that a huge number of ethical issues, whether they be disbarment, suspensions, somehow begin with somebody being in financial dire straits. And they end up making decisions that you just wouldn't normally make if they weren't desperate in some way. So I think if you're going to talk about this kind of topic, you're going to talk about the sort of temptations that you have as a lawyer who might be struggling financially. It's important that you have some relevant experience. And sadly, I have more than my fair share of experience being a broke lawyer. I've been broke more than once in more than one way and not that long ago. So when I was in that situation, if I looked at lawyers I saw as being successful, I I thought, well, They don't know what I'm going through. They don't understand what I'm experiencing. But the fact is, most of us have. And the thing that you point out, you wrote a piece that will be in Trial Briefs, our quarterly magazine, after the CLE is put on. And reading that, I was struck by something that I noticed myself when I was editor of North Carolina Lawyers Weekly, that you read those disciplinary reports, and it's very seldom, is it? the lawyers in the big firms who are supported by staff and administrators and people who are there to help them keep their books in order. It's usually folks in practice for themselves or in small firms are the ones who get into trouble, right? It does happen a fair bit because I've been self-employed in some capacity ever since I was a law clerk. But in a lot of places, you have a built-in buffers, have someone else managing the trust account on a daily basis who does that as their job. But that's not how most of us actually practice law. Most of us are in a small firm setting or a solo setting. And so we really have to do a lot of that for ourselves, which is a reason that it becomes very important to try to seek out mentoring relationships and folks that have been through the kind of things that you're going through. And the thing that you begin to see if you take a look at all these individual stories is that 
people who get into trouble with these finance-related ethics violations, it's not usually greed that seems to be the motivation. Yeah, I'm certain that there's folks out there that are just purely motivated by greed. I know there's some outright thieves out there, but in terms of what I see when I flip to that section of the bar journal, you know, and look at the disciplinary department or in the cases that I have become familiar with in practice, whether it was opposing counsel or a lawyer that I knew, almost always it was someone who made mistakes largely because they were struggling financially. And almost uniformly, it was someone who felt justified or maybe was pushed across the line in their mind because of what was going on in their lives. And there's some specific examples I talk about in the paper. You know, one a guy who his family life was falling apart. He was drinking too much. He had a side business that was failing. He was in real estate and the real estate market had slowed down a little bit. There were a lot of pressures on him that was making it difficult for him to sort of function normally. And he was getting behind with money. And this is a guy who had millions of dollars passing through his trust account every month because he did a large volume of real estate closing. And he got disbarred over $10,000. Now, if this guy was looking to get rich off the, he would have stolen a lot more money than $10,000. But more likely, what happened was he pitched here and there in order to get this bill paid, make payroll, get his 941s paid, something like that. Terrible ethical decision, but one that arose not just from greed, but from trying to keep his financial ship in order when it was going under. Uh, similarly, another friend of mine basically was taking cases he didn't have any business taking. And then once he got them, didn't know what to do with them. And that led to this sort of spiral of delays and mistakes and misinformation to clients or poor communication with clients about what was going on. And that kind of spiraled to the point that he had multiple people grieve him to the bar and ended up resulting in a suspension. That one's not as directly financially related as someone dipping into the trust account. You know, the classic case we think about with people getting in uh, trouble with finances. But it began with finances. He was only taking these cases he shouldn't have been taking because he was behind financially and felt desperate. And a lot of this comes from this desperation, comes from this sense of shame, right? That's something you are going to talk about a lot. The sense of shame is huge. I think in any law practice, there's this sort of assumption that money equals good lawyer, lack of money equals bad lawyer. And because of that, there is can be a lot of pressure to sort of show outward success and to conceal financial failure. That shame is dangerous because sometimes the acts to conceal the shame or the acts to act like you have more money than you've got, it can lead to more ethical problems. You feel the pressure to present a certain image and you don't take this case that you think might make someone think, oh, he's just a small case lawyer, or you have to have this car to make people think he's a big case lawyer. And you are ashamed of reaching out to other people because you're worried about their opinions of you when they see that you're having financial problems. And as a result, you're taking actions that actually make you more likely to dig a deeper hole for yourself and less likely to find solutions, particularly when it comes to reaching out to folks that could help. I know that was something that was difficult for me at times. But one of the things we have to realize is that, you know, it's rarely a straight line from point A to point B, from the financial pit to financial success. It probably, for most of us, looks more like a 
an EKG than a straight line. And for me, it was a really big deal to learn that some of my heroes in the practice had been through some of the same things that I had, both because it kind of took away some of that shame and made me feel less alone at times when I was struggling, and also because they were able to give me some practical advice or maybe send me a couple of cases, <laughs> you know, something. But you know, none of that's going to happen if you are so ashamed of your situation, you don't reach out for help for fear of people knowing that you're having a problem. So I think I say in the paper that's there's any takeaway from this presentation, it should be, there's no shame in being broke. And that's a really hard lesson, I think, in today's world where we're so Instagram-based, but lawyers have always been best foot forward, shiny shoes. Whoever's got the best suit is certainly going to be the one you should you know, trust. The image has always been a very important part of the persona of being an attorney. How are some ways that you can overcome that sort of being able to separate yourself from the need to project an image of success and being able to admit that you need help? One of the biggest for me, as I mentioned, was reaching out to other lawyers, successful lawyers, lawyers who I really did care about how they perceived me and figuring out that they had been there too. I mean, I just one time at a NCAJ convention walked up to Wade Bird and introduced myself. And that was probably 15 years ago. We've had this great friendship. And this is a guy who's been important to me. He's one of my heroes in terms of having the guts to go try cases and get verdicts. But he's also really open about the fact that he had his peaks and valleys as well. His great quote, I've been rich and I've been poor, but neither one for very long. And he actually said that standing at a podium in New Orleans getting the War Horse Award, you know, Lifetime Type Achievement Award from the Southern Trial Lawyers Association. So even right there, what had to be one of the best moments of his career to be able to stand there and be honest about the fact that it wasn't a straight line to get there. To me, to be able to talk to a guy like that, him kind of tell me about weathering those kind of storms was important to me, particularly on the shame front. And there's some other things that we have to take seriously. One of the lawyers I work with now, Anne-Marie Pantesa, she's really great about mentoring younger lawyers on the financial side of things. We're so focused on getting cases, winning cases, that sometimes we forget we're running a business. And, you know, I'm not a financial planner by any stretch, but having your financial ship in order does ultimately become an ethical issue because you take the same ethical decision and you're making it one day when it doesn't affect your ability to pay your mortgage and you're making it the next day and it does affect the ability to pay your mortgage. I'm not saying that anyone's justified in making a different ethical choice, but if we're being realistic, it is a more complicated situation for the person who's sitting there saying, you know, can I send my kids to preschool this month? Can I pay their tuition? Can I make my car payment? Can I make my payroll? It's another big, you see that one a lot with lawyers that end up skimming where they shouldn't skim because they're trying to keep people working for them. One of the toughest things, and I say this as a parent of two teenagers, one of the hardest lessons to impart to folks is don't be in too big a hurry. It's a marathon, not a sprint. My parents didn't get through to me on that one either, right? When I was 16 or 19, the ages of my children. But I see it with lawyers. We want success and we want it now. And it's hard to sometimes stomach that, hey, we're going to have to shovel some garbage for a long time to get to the cases we really want to do. That's just a reality. It's a process to get there. We're not going to be able to on day one 
have the exact house we want, the exact car we want, the exact clothes we want, the exact office we want. I understand that to some people, they think that presenting that certain image of success is important. But in my personal experience, a lot of the best cases that ever walked through my door were what I was driving a beat up GMC Jimmy or, or a Prius that I put 200,000 miles on. And I think that those cases came to me because of the work I did and the relationships I built, as opposed to an image that I projected about a certain level of success. So it, it takes a lot of discipline, but I really do think that when we live to the top of our means, it just doesn't allow for the rainy day. But the rainy day is coming. It could come by losing a case you had a lot of money in. It could come by getting fired from a job, getting divorced, you know, getting sick. There's a lot of things that can happen. And so many of us are in such a hurry that we want all those things, those sort of outward signs of success, that when the rainy day does come, we don't have the ability to get through it. There's so much emphasis on being the 40 under 40 and the rising star and standing out among, and that culture is ingrained early. It starts with your top of the class and then you're at law school and you're top of the your law review and you want to, you get out of school and you want to continue those accolades and like having the trophies. And we trade actual trophies for these trappings of success that cost money. You have a great passage in the paper you wrote talking about beware of the Joneses and comparing yourself to others, whether they're your fellow lawyers or neighbors, that's a really good lesson for lawyers and for probably anybody. You know, everybody might look like they're doing really well on the outside, but you never know like how hard they might be working to keep up those appearances. And especially now, I mean, you know, I didn't grow up. There was no such thing as social media when I grew up, and it's the the most classic thing there. You know, you've got no matter what chaos might be going on in someone's life, it looks really good on Instagram, right? Because it's always the pictures of the kids and the with their matching dresses and sunflower field or something. It's never chaos and mayhem. And how am I going to pay the, the mortgage next month? And so, you know, people know the reality of their own lives. And they only know the image of other people's lives that's being laid out there for them. And so when you know the ugly parts of your own life and you're only seeing the beautiful parts of somebody else's accentuates that thing that was already there in human nature to have us compare ourselves and worried about if they have this, they turned left and I turned right and look at their life. Now it looks so great, but it's difficult to do because it is so ingrained in human nature, but we all have to think seriously about what is it that we need and what is it that we want and why do we want those things and what's really important to us and what's not. And there's nothing wrong with being a car person. There's nothing wrong with being a, a house person. Like for me, I'm a travel person. My wife and I love to, and kids, we love to travel all over and probably spend a fair bit of money on travel. And then somebody might say, well, you know, why doesn't Sam have nicer clothes? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, these are all things that we have to figure out for ourselves. And it's far more important, which really means something to us or what we really value than projecting a certain image. I'm not saying that projecting a certain image of success is irrelevant to, to what happens in your career. My version of that, and I certainly, I say this in the paper, I've, I've done as many things wrong as I've done right, but we tried to be patient with some of the material things that we wanted and tried to not be influenced by what somebody else was buying or where they were living. And I'm glad we did because, you know, we did have rainy days happen. And even when we thought we were being prudent, I mean, we got heavily invested in real estate in 2000 five, six, seven, and then the real estate market completely collapses in 2008 and nine. So here we were 
thinking we had done a smart conservative thing with our money and then we still ended up broke again. So even if we hadn't have been trying to not pay attention to the Joneses before that happened, it was a matter of necessity after that. I also knew it was a long game and then if I kept my head down and worked hard, it would eventually work out. Yeah, but it really is a lesson that time is usually the only 100% effective teacher of that lesson, like you said, trying to tell your 16-year-old or your 19-year-old that. So it's great that there might be some younger lawyers, some newer lawyers who could come and like just, you know, hear you tell this story because that's the only way that you're going to think about these things any differently is to listen to some folks you respect say, you know, I've had these ups and downs and my path to success looks like an EKG, as you said, and it doesn't always shoot straight to the top. Be ready for that. And we all have to take you know certain risks to get there, right? I mean, I risked a lot of money on some cases. I risked a lot of borrowed money on cases. So we definitely took I'm not saying not to take risks, right? I think at times you have to take calculated risks, not be reckless, but certainly take some calculated risks. But And some of those blew up in my face. There's no question about that. We just had to sort of dust ourselves off and, and go back at it again. Well, I'm sure this is going to be a really great presentation. I'm looking forward to it. And I know you've got some other folks who will be presenting alongside you at this program as well. Who else is on the bill for Ethics Hot Issues? Yeah, so we've got three other speakers. Deanna Brocker, I think a lot of people know Deanna, her. She advises a lot of lawyers about ethical issues, specifically some colleagues who have gotten opinion letters from her on issues like when you can talk to an opposing party's employees and former employees. So she is an ideal person to have kind of give an update on what's going on at the state bar in terms of ethical issues. We also have Two really good friends about on the panel, you know, kind of continuing a theme of what I'm talking about in a way, because it has a lot to do with keeping yourself from getting into an impossible position, right? And I'm talking about the financial part of that. Helen Bedour is going to talk about, you know, organization. A lot of lawyers get overwhelmed or they don't know where they're supposed to be when. And I've certainly experienced times like that in my career where I, I had so much going on and was probably not as organized as I should be that I was always afraid of making some kind of mistake. And so Helen's going to talk about preventing these sort of ethical issues through organization. Lauren Newton, who's our legal affairs vice president, is going to be talking about fighting with other lawyers. We inserted FAIR, fighting FAIR with other lawyers in a parenthetical. She doesn't shy away from a fight in her cases, but she does in a very professional manner. And so she's going to talk to us again about how you can engage. You can dig in, but at the same time, you can do that without crossing any lines. So I think it's going to be really good CLE overall. Yeah, it, I think it's going to be great. It's a terrific lineup. And it is going to be virtual. There's no in-person. So you can take this from the uh, comfort of your own home and you don't have to worry about what to wear. Lawyers can take the Ethics Hot Issues CLE virtually only on February 21. And to find out more, check out the NCAJ.com events calendar. NCAJ.com slash events. And while you're there, you can check out the whole lineup of CLE and other member events we have planned for February and March. The calendar is pretty chock full. Thank you so much, Sam, for putting on the ethics CLE program and for talking about the ethics of being a broke lawyer and for sharing your wisdom on the podcast and at the upcoming CLE. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Voices of NCAJ. 
For more information on the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and how to join or support NCAJ, please visit our website at www.ncaj.com.